Father God, we are here again in this building or watching online. We are here again to come before you and to think again about you and about our faith, about our life, about the life you commission us to, about the world that you've given us to live in. We confess that watching the news day by day at the moment makes our hearts sink so often. Hope is snatched away when we think that things are improving and then things remain very difficult to understand, very difficult to know what's going to happen next. Life feels unpredictable and changeable. So this morning, Lord, I ask with all my heart that you, for me, for everyone who's listening here or online, would reassure us that there is something that we can put our hope in, that there is someone who is unchanging. We remember the verse that says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we pause and reflect on that verse, thinking, if we believe that verse, then you were the God that we worship before the pandemic. That you are the God that we worship in the midst of this pandemic. And you will be the God that we worship after this pandemic is a memory. Thank you, Lord, that we have hope in you. Would you stir that in us now? In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Does that ring true with you, that prayer? That's how I feel from time to time. So we go through week by week, and we're uncertain where we're going to be this time next week. I've worn a mask around the building again today. Who enjoys wearing a mask here? You enjoy it, Kieran. You are, you are the one <laughs> who says in that way. Does anybody here enjoy wearing a mask? I don't know anyone who enjoys wearing a mask. People sometimes today say to me, you know, oh, we're asking you to wear a mask again. And they say, oh, but I don't like it. As if that's a surprise. Of course you don't like it. I don't like it. But we wear this mask because as a sign of love when we're around the building at this time. But I wear this love as a temporary sign. I look beyond this and I want to look in hope beyond where we are at the moment. I want to tell you about a hope that's lasting. I want to tell you about what you can build your life on this week. I want to tell you about something that isn't going to change. Would you like to hear about that? Would you like to hear some good news this week? Well, that's what we're going to speak about. We sing a song here called Cornerstone. I think we're going to sing it a bit later. And in that song, it quotes a verse that is found in uh, Psalm 18, 118 and then is quoted later in 1 Peter chapter 2, which says this, The stone the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. It is a verse that relates to the cross, the place where people reject God in Christ at the very moment that we are loved to the very end and where we understand who God is. The song we sing has the words, Dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. And that's not a bad summary of the verses that we've heard read this morning. I want you to hear those, those lines that we sing. Dressed in his righteousness alone. How do you feel when you come to pray or when you go about your life? Do you ever find yourself thinking, well, what have I got to offer? What have I got to bring to this? Who am I compared to that person over there? Or things aren't going as well as I hoped. I'm not the person I thought I would be. The message of Romans is we bring nothing to God. And he gives us everything. That's what dressed in his righteousness alone means. 
If you are dressed in the righteousness of God, you lack no good thing. That's what it means. So tomorrow morning when you go to work, or when you struggle with being a parent, or struggle with being a child, or a brother, or a friend at this time, reflect on the fact that you are dressed in the righteousness of Christ, that he has given that to you. It is your birthright as a child of God. And because you are dressed in his righteousness alone, you lack nothing. Isn't that amazing? You lack nothing. You don't need anything beyond that. That is everything we need. The problem of sin, of idolatry, of replacing true worship of uncreation is only met in Jesus. That's what we say here. It's quite a strong statement to say. There's lots of things going on in the world. What is the answer? The answer, we believe, ultimately, is Jesus. Do we not? Everything that you're facing in your life at the moment, everything that you're struggling about with, boils down to whether you are going to build your life on this or you're going to look for some other foundation. And the message of Romans is this. If you build on another foundation, it will not last. It will crack and there will be problems. We have nothing to bring. We stand in his righteousness alone. But to do so is to stand faultless before God and to know that nothing can separate us from his love. It is to point to this salvation, this status, this new creation, and to dispel all other claims and qualifications that Paul writes to the church in Rome. Remember people who say, well, we are Jews and we actually have the inheritance, or, well, actually, we're Gentiles and we're more faith-filled than you are because we don't talk about that. We just trust in this way. We're the new ones. Don't talk about those things, says Paul. You are starting to pull apart the very thing which is held together by the cross, which is this. My friends, my family in here, you are my family. Did you know that? Bad news. I am your brother eternally. Why? Because of Jesus. Because of Jesus. And for that reason, we lack no good thing. And that's good news, isn't it? Let's talk a little bit more. We began by saying that the letter to Rome was written to a church of mixed of Jews and Gentiles. Paul has spoken about the gospel, the good news that saves all people by revealing something that we talked about as the righteousness of God. Do you remember that in the first week? The righteousness of God. And we said the righteousness of God, that phrase means something that God is, something that God does, and something that God gives. All three things. This is the thing. And in the previous chapters, Paul sketches a dilemma, a dilemma that God faces. And I want you to hear this loud and clear. A dilemma which is of practical importance for the church in Rome. We learn that God is the creator. Do we believe that? God is the creator, the one behind all things, who creates out of love and who makes human beings in his image in order to govern this world and to give glory back to him. That's the point. We've read that human beings all have rebelled by ignoring God and worshipping other things. We easily put other stuff rather than God at the centre of our life. And when we do that, we shatter the image that we're supposed to have. And what happens when we shatter the image is we don't reflect the glory of God into the world, but something else. And when that happens, things start to fall apart and go wrong. 
We've recognised a dilemma of a righteous, holy, perfect, faithful God who desperately wants relationship with you and yet sees that you are infected with this uncreatedness, this unrighteousness, this depraved, broken, unfaithful quality that we have. We make wrong choices. And we said in the first week that righteousness and unrighteousness cannot coexist because a righteous God cannot put up with unrighteousness forever. I said, didn't I, that it's a bit like matter and antimatter in Star Trek. Do you remember that? Matter and antimatter. You have to say that in a Scottish voice because it's Scottish. Matter and antimatter. How was that, Carrick? I think you're right. And what happens when matter and antimatter come together? Kaboom, we said. It's a big explosion. What happens when righteousness and unrighteousness exist? Kaboom. So how does God resolve this dilemma that says, I love you to pieces, all you human beings, and I love this world, but you've made such a mess of it. And it drives me mad. I've made you for this purpose, and it's glorious. And you're pulling everything apart, and somehow, if we, things keep going this way, everything is going to be ruined. But I love you, and I want to be with you. And how do I do this if you're the ones who are going the way away from me, are constantly turning your back to me? What do I do? How does God remain true to himself, love his creation, and also deal with sin and that momentum that pulls everything apart, that sin fosters? What does God do with his just anger towards those who he promises to love eternally? What happens? How is it resolved? So Paul tells the church in Rome this, Jew and Gentile, wherever your background is, says, listen, this is what you need to remember here, all of you. Every single one of you, if you're going to be the people that you're called to be. God tells the church that in order to demonstrate his faithfulness to the promises he's made, he has to achieve certain things. He longs to restore relationship with you. Do you ever think, I wish I was nearer to God? I wish I, was, I felt closer to God. How much more so does God feel, I wish I was closer to you? I wish you would turn nearer to me. God's longing is not just for relationship, it is for intimacy. I long for that. That's why we have hungry prayer times in the evening at the moment. That's why I have them. Because I want to be closer to God. I want a close walk with God. Because the closer we walk as a family together with God, the more wonderful things like Christmas markets will happen. The more people will come to know Jesus the more blessed this community will be, the more brokenness might see healing. I really believe that. He longs to restore that possibility of that relationship, but with people who've turned their back on him and abused his ways. And he can't do this by pretending that nothing's happened. Have you ever tried that? Somebody's offended you, and what you try and do is say, okay, we're going to get over this. I'm just going to pretend that nothing's happened. Does it work? No. It really doesn't work because the thing that happened has still happened and is still happening here and in here. You know, we talk about sweeping things under the carpet, don't we? But if you sweep the problem under the carpet, what happens is you trip up from time to time and fall in your face because there's a lump there that is still there. God says, I long for intimacy with you, but the offense of sin is real and needs to be dealt with. It cannot be ignored. How do I do this when one way is to judge the people that are doing and remove this, but that means that I can't have relationship with the people because I long to have relationship with them. How do I resolve this? 
How can I possibly do this? It means finding a way of filling, fulfilling an agreement that was made a long ago, but which one side has decided that they're not going to pay any attention to. You and me, us. And the answer that comes, comes with those words that we talked about in Romans 3. But now. But now. See, God's answer to this dilemma is not by giving us a new set of rules. It's not by trying to give a better self-help talk. There's lots of motivational books you can read nowadays, aren't they? Read this and you'll be more effective, more productive. God doesn't do that. He doesn't give us a self-help book. The Bible is not a self-help book. That's really important because sometimes you can hear people talking in church, probably me as well, saying that if you live this life, then life will be better. And I think it probably will be better. You'll live better. But that's not the point. The point is not, here's an instruction of trying harder and being more effective. The point is that somewhere in this book, Jesus is going to be sent. And the answer to that problem of how we have intimacy and we deal with sin happens in that person. God takes this problem and resolves it himself for us so that we will never have to resolve this. And so that you have the benefits. And therefore he longs for you to have intimacy with him. He longs for you to say, why are you holding back? Do you not know that you have all good things? And that as you live to my glory, as you live putting me center, you will be fulfilled. Are you worried about work this week? Many of us are. What happens if we put living to God's glory at the center of our week this week? Not the problem, but that. What happens if we feel we're struggling because we've said something that we shouldn't have done and we feel we've let people down and we realize that actually there is forgiveness that is offered us? Not conditional, but absolute as we turn to Jesus. What happens if you live out of that? What happens not just for you, but for us and for all of us when that happens? Everything changes as a result. So Jesus comes along and he's going to be the fulfillment of the story that the Jews knew all along. Because the, the, the people of God were supposed to be a blessing to everybody. That's what Je- um, Genesis 12 said to Abraham. Follow me and I will bless you and make you a blessing. You, in Isaiah it says you will be a light to the nations. Look at this people and everybody will see. But then the people themselves become part of the problem. So they look at the people and only see more problems. And so God says, well... I was always going to resolve this through this people. How am I going to do this? So he decides to reduce the people to a person, one person from that people who will live perfectly. His name is Jesus, and he will fulfill all his promises through him. So the old story isn't given up. It's not like there's the Old Testament. We chuck that away and there's the New Testament. But the Old Testament is fulfilled in Jesus. Fulfilled. Jesus is God's king and representative. He is the righteousness of God. He is the one to which the law and the prophets testify. Jesus is the hope that the Old Testament expects and awaits. He is the fulfillment of that story. And yet it says in this passage as well that Jesus is going to bring this righteousness apart from the law. What does that mean? He's the fulfillment of this story, but he's also going to come apart from the law. Why? Because your future is not going to be based about obeying the law, as if you have to work up some sort of perfection in yourself to be able to do this and then be right before God. The law is going to be fulfilled, but not in you. It's going to be fulfilled in Jesus 
And then you are going to find yourself if you trust in him in Jesus. And then maybe you'll start to live the life that you were supposed to live all along if you find yourself in Jesus, which comes back to how are you going to live this week when you go to work? Are you going to live in Jesus or in James, in Neil, in Mark? How are you going to live this week? And what difference is it going to make? You see, the law, as we said, that's why I extended that reading that we had at the beginning. Paul says the law at the end of the day to the Jewish part of the church. You think you're proud because you've got all of this. But the trouble is with the law is all it does is shows that you fall, you fall short. It doesn't make you better. It makes you realize that you're in a, you've got a problem. The more you understand God's ways, the more you understand you've got a problem. The more you long to be, to be right with God. Isn't that right? The more you understand the nature of God, the more you want to please him and long for that. So this is where it's good again to remember that Romans is a letter from a particular person to a particular church in a particular situation for a particular purpose. And yet recognises that this message carries import to all of us. And the point is this. In the church, there is no preference or privilege for one type of person over another type of person. No one sitting in this room at the moment is any better than anybody else. Let me tell you something even more disturbing. None of you in yourself are any better than anybody who's out there either. And it is a problem if you think you are. It's a massive problem if you think you are. I like this phrase, which I think I've made up myself. I'm very self-congratulatory about this. And I'm not sure if it's true or not, but I think it is. There is no us and them, only the grace of God. I really believe that. There is no us and them, only the grace of God. So stop judging other people because they are not like you, because they have a different skin colour, because they come from a different country, because they have a different culture in this way, because you think they're not as moral as you. Because in this passage it says, it makes no difference whether you are Jew or Gentile, or in or out, he says, because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's what it says. So the context of that verse, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, is the context of the letter, which is, it doesn't matter if you're Jew or Gentile, because whoever you are, you all stand in need. You've all sinned, you've all fallen short. There is level ground at the foot of the cross, as they say. Christian faith begins and operates not out of a moral self-righteousness. This is really ironic because people out there think that Christians are people who are good people who do good stuff, don't they? Isn't that right? Somebody at work might talk to you from time to time. Let's talk, Nigel's at work and he's, he's, he's inadvertently um, sworn because Luton lost yesterday. And they hear him and say, Nigel, I thought you were a Christian. I thought you were a Christian. You shouldn't do this. Well, that's a fundamental misunderstanding of what it is to be a Christian, isn't it? Nobody who's in here, I hope, thinks, well, we're all good. We've got everything right and everybody else needs to be like us. What we think is we've got everything wrong and everybody else has got everything wrong as well. And if only they realised that, they'd know the freedom that we found because we're forgiven and we have a fresh start. We live our life without resource because we rely entirely on the grace of God. And the power for Christian living doesn't come because you are better, more moral, more whatever it is, but because you recognize the outrageous extent of God's love for you that is shown at the cross. 
That's what gives you the power to live. Somebody I was talking to this week who doesn't go to church, this is a by the by, but I think it's important for us to think about, said that thing to me, which is what everybody who doesn't go to church says about faith. We, we started talking about it, and they said to me, they're not a believer, they said, uh, you know, faith, he says, I think faith is a good thing. Faith is a good thing if it, if it helps you and it makes you feel better, that's great for you. He says, I'm really pleased that you have faith. And I didn't challenge this because at the time I've only, I'm only getting to know this person and I, I felt bad about it afterwards. I had the voice of Alex in my head. What, should, what would Alex say? What would Alex say at this point? But on the way home, I was walking home and I, thought, I realised what I should have said. This is what you should say if somebody says this, okay? You should say, it's really interesting that you say that, that faith is good for you and it's good for people that whoever feels like that, because nobody I know who goes to church, who lives inside that, thinks that. Absolutely nobody does. We don't go to church, do we? Because, well, it works for us and it feels good, so we might as well go along here. The reason people I know come to my church, I think, tell me if I'm wrong, the reason people I know who come to my church come, not because it feels good or because it works, but because it's true. And if you say that... Suddenly the conversation goes in a very different direction, doesn't it? Because what difference does it make if it's true? It makes every difference, doesn't it? Faith isn't about making you feel good or because it works for you. Faith has its power because it's true. And that's what you're standing on. I want you to hear that loud and clear. I want you to be encouraged by that. It's really important. So... We need to remember, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. That's what he says to Jew and Gentile. But then he says also, not only have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but then it says, all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. Everybody falls short. Everybody is saved. Everybody falls short because they're human. Everybody is saved in Jesus. That's what it says doesn't mean that everybody will be saved, a universalism here. What it means is that there is the potential for everybody to find rescue in this one person, Jesus. The word redemption means buying someone back from slavery. That's the technical place of it. Does that ring a bell with another story from the Old Testament? People being bought out of slavery? Well, it reminds us of the Exodus, doesn't it? And the story of what people coming out of Egypt. People who were slaves under a foreign power who are set free to live a life which they learn in the wilderness and find in the land in company with God. That's what you're called to in Jesus. Everyone everywhere stands in the same need of rescue. Everybody has forfeited what is theirs because of sin. And everybody has redemption because God will have the victory in Christ. That's what it says. So this setting free, here's the, here's the nub of the passage that we're talking about. I've said, that God's, I've said about God's got a dilemma, haven't I? Do you remember what God's dilemma was? God's dilemma is I love you to pieces, but I can't be with you because you keep doing everything wrong. And I can't be with people who keep doing everything wrong because I am the person who is good fundamentally. How do I resolve this? I resolve this in Jesus. How does God resolve this in Jesus? Well, the bottom line is, I don't fully understand this because it's a mystery. 
And if you watch different, read the the whole of the New Testament, the, the Bible says different things about what happens at the cross. Some places it says that the cross reveals who God is. That's what the cross does. Some places it says that the the cross presents Jesus to suffer in our place so that we know that he understands what suffering is. So when we suffer, Jesus is there with us in the midst of our suffering. In some places it says that Jesus defeated the power of evil on the cross. That death is defeated, that evil is defeated on the cross. And you needn't worry about the power of evil anymore because Jesus has defeated it on the cross. And in other places, notably here, and one or two other places, he says that what Jesus did on the cross is he puts all of the consequences of our wrongdoing, our sin, onto this person, Jesus, who has lived a good life and has nothing to be blamed, who willingly embraces the cross and says, give me everything, everything that causes you pain, everything that separates you from God. Give it to me all and absolutely all judgment at all time and all cost is poured onto this one man on the cross who carries everything and takes it like a scapegoat in the Old Testament into the wilderness of death and leaves it there and then comes back risen from the dead, from the tomb, as a new human being, same but different with a new creation life about them, saying that that image which was shattered, which led to you causing everything to fall apart, is is fixed in Jesus. And we are growing to be more and more like the likeness of Jesus. And the more and more we're like the likeness of Jesus, the more we will govern this world the way in which we should have governed the world all along. And those things that have fallen apart find hope in this. And you eternally have a promise that death will not separate you from God that you have a place with him eternally. You do not need to be frightened anymore. That's what my Ugandan friend, you've heard me say this many times here. We had a a theology lecturer once at college, I remember he said, well, tell me what the good news is. I thought, well, God, we're all Bible college students. We all should know this. So everyone's formulating their, well, sins, cross, da-di-da-di-da. And my, my African friend just looked at him and he said, it means that I need no longer be afraid of dying. And I need no longer be afraid of living. I love that. That's the gospel. You don't need to be frightened of dying. Even in a time of COVID, my friends, you don't need to be frightened of dying. Nobody wants you to suffer along the way, but you don't need to be frightened of death. And you don't need to be frightened of living either. Please don't be frightened of living. Please help me not to be frightened of living. That's what happens on the cross. Jesus is offered as a sacrifice for the sin of the world. And that sacrifice brings the last judgment forward into history so that you need not fear judgment because it's already happened on Jesus. You're free in Jesus to live the life that you've got to be. Now it seems to me that that means that you ought to really be fascinated with Jesus. You really ought to want to know him better. You really ought to want to walk closer with him. My friends, my family, my church. That is the heart. You come to the gathering, you're going to hear that again. God's spoken to me recently. I find that quite hard to say. Because often I'm quite suspicious of people who say that. But I genuinely believe this. I genuinely believe that God has whispered to me. And he said two things. 
The first thing is, you, Steve, if you're going to be a leader, need to be very hungry for God. And you need to live a life that shows hunger for God. And you need to encourage others to be hungry for God. And the second thing is that we need to learn to what it is to be disciples, not just come to services. We need to be a church who disciple each other and make disciples. Because this changes everything. And the reason for that is because of what Jesus did on the cross. John Stott wrote about this. And he's used a few long words, but it seems to me to sum up what I just said. So here's what John Stott said about it. God's own great love propitiated, that means paid the price for, really. God's own, God's great love propitiated his own holy wrath through the gift of his own dear son who took our place, bore our sin and died our death. In other words, God took all of that which is ours, our sin, our death, and put it onto himself in Jesus. He said to Sandy here, who's a lovely lady, Sandy, that Sandy also has some sin in her life. And he said to Sandy, you know what, I don't want you to suffer under the burden of that anymore. I want you to be intimate with me. I want you to know that I love you. I love you so much that absolutely everything that you have done, are doing, will ever do, that will cause offence against me and cause offence to other people, I have dealt with once and for all on the cross. You are free. You are loved eternally. (coughs) Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. So that's pretty much all that I wanted to say, apart from this, as a conclusion. The rest of Romans, which we'll come back to next year, talks about what happens because of what we've just talked about. That's really important because this comes first, not the other stuff. Do you remember when I used to talk about dooby-dooby-doo? Does anyone remember that? So here's my dooby-doo, just a quick referral. Frank Sinatra. You remember Frank Sinatra? Frank Sinatra, when he got older, used to forget the lyrics to the songs that he used to sing. So he used to sing, do-be-do-be-do, Do you like that? It's almost like Frank Sinatra being here, didn't you think? And I said, Frank Sinatra is a great singer, isn't he? Lovely. Almost as good as me. Um, but he's a bad theologian. And the reason he's a bad theologian is because he sings do-be-do-be-do. He puts his doing before his being. And a good theologian would go, be do, be do, be do, be do, be do. This is really important because it's about your freedom. There is doing to be done, my friends. There's a lot of doing to be done. But it comes out of who you are in Christ. Who are you in Christ? Who are you today? You are eternally loved, chosen, Commissioned, purposed, intended, beautiful, beautiful, Paul Noble, beautiful, Paul Noble. He is, eternally. 
your being proceeds, and because you are that person, you have a job to do. And the job to do is this. In ancient times, when the emperor used to uh, have a big empire and he wanted people to know that he was the emperor of the land, one of the things they'd do is they'd build a statue to the empire in the far distant land. And the statue would be there. So that the people in that country, even though they didn't see the emperor, saw the statue of the emperor. And the statue of the emperor represented the emperor and his rule and his reign. So you saw the statue of the emperor and you saw the, the, the implications of the fact that he was the emperor. Well, in the temple, there are no statues, are there, in the Old Testament? Because you can't make a graven image of God. So if emperor had a statue in his far distant lands to represent his rule and his reign, and God doesn't have any statues, and all pagan gods had statues, so God didn't have a statue, where's the representation in the far different lands? Where is it? You're looking at it. You're looking at it. You are God's statues in far distant lands, representing his image, so that people can know that Jesus is Lord and that God's reigns. That's what you're called to do when you're an accountant tomorrow. That's what you're called to do. You're God's statue in that place, living to his glory. So not only is the image shattered and all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, but the image is restored and renewed in Christ. And we live in Christ, and therefore we have something to image to the world. The way that God governs. That's our call. That's what we have to future. So the words just after the passage um, that, we've, that we've finished with. You know what the first words then? After, after verse 27. What's the first words of verse 27? Can anyone remind me what chapter 3 verse 27 begins with? Shout out if you can hear it. But now, that's verse 21, isn't that? Verse 27. But now where is, where is boasting, he says, to the church who are boasting? Because, well, I'm a Jew and I'm a Jew. I've got all the Old Testament. I'm a Gentile. I'm one of the new ones. Everything's working out for me. I'm better than you. I've got more faith. I don't rely on that old stuff. Where is boasting for those of us who says, well, look at me. I'm a decent fella. I live a good life. Look at the quality of my life, the way I brought up my children. I'm a decent fella. Look at me. Where is boasting, he says. Where is boasting? It is not in you. It is in Jesus. Whether you're Jew or Gentile, whether you're old or young, male or female, wherever you come from, because our lives are calling us to live to the glory of God. That is what we boast about when we get up tomorrow. Because God, God is dancing and singing over you and celebrating you. Nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. That's the gospel. At least that's what I think it is. Let's pray. And then we're going to worship. Can we sing that song, Martin, in a minute there? Father God, I want to pray for all of us gathered here and all of us online at this time. If you're sitting at home at this moment, I want you to stop. It's easy just to be sitting there in your pyjamas and just letting life go on around you. But this is a moment to stop. Remind us that we have sinned and fallen short of your glory. But now, 
In Christ, we are set free. We are remade, remodeled in a new way to be the new image of God made in Christ wherever we go. And that is our call and our commission and our passion and, our, and that is what is to your glory. Thank you that we have each other. Thank you that you make statues in all sorts of shapes and sizes. Thank you that there is no us and them, only the grace of God. God's riches at Christ's expense. Would you set us free again? In Jesus' name. Amen.